everybody. Welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. I am here yet again with Andrew Bontz from the Choose the Hard Way podcast. We are going to talk about maybe a, maybe a bit of a ramble, but we'll talk about the Volta España, which is wrapping up this weekend. Um, actually, I, you could say Remco Evenepoel set to, to seal up his overall title, but uh, maybe we're not so sure about that. And then we'll get in a few, into a few other things like Roglic Gate, how we're now public. We're both public enemy, maybe 1A and 1B in Slovenia now, and some world's talk. So, Andrew, do you want to say a quick word about your podcast really quick before we get going? Yeah, for sure. If you haven't checked it out yet, please head over to choosethehardway.com or you can find Choose the Hard Way anywhere you listen to podcasts. The show is about how hard things build stronger more resilient humans. I have guests from the world of tech, the arts, the military, you name it, that are on my show. I've got some really awesome episodes coming up with big mountain skier and activist Lindsay Dyer and so many other guests that you will love to hear from. So please come check us out and you can find us on social at Hardway Pod and you can find me at Vance. Tune in. I highly recommend it. Great podcast. So, Andrew, what do you think about this Vuelta España so far? Other than that, every stage is a clone of the stage before it. They seem to just every stage is flat with a summit finished, but the summit's actually not quite that hard. So it's a lot of I don't know. I feel like it's been a lot of repetitive racing, but Remco Evenepoel has been very strong would be would be my note. And Mads Pedersen is awesome. He won again today. I think he won the day that we last recorded last Friday. It's his third win, third stage win of the Vuelta. The guy's awesome. He'd probably win Worlds if he was going. He's not going. Um, a bit confusing. A lot of people aren't going to Worlds. But what, have, what has been your thought about the Vuelta so far? My prediction on the last episode was that neither Primoz Roglic nor Remco Evenepoel would win the race. It seems highly improbable at this point that Remco won't win, but I'm sticking with my prediction. It's actually a good, good prediction, by the way. Obviously, Primoz is out. He's not going to win. Um, I'm crash. half right already. I'm half right yeah. already. I don't know. I mean, it's funny. I have another podcast with like Remco super fan, Johan Brunil. And it's like, we've just been having like a low, there's like been low key tension the entire race. Cause I just keep being like, well, Remco, this, we've had a lot of mountain stages. You know, this is the first real mountain stage tomorrow with multiple mountains. And maybe this could crack them. I'm getting desperate at this point though. Um, I don't know that it's just a tough stage. If you remember 2015, a young rider from the Low Countries, from Holland, was dominating the Vuelta España, rolled into almost a carbon copy of the stage. Stage 20, outside of Madrid, he's ambushed by Mikael Landa and Fabio Aru. Aru takes the title. This guy loses seven minutes, and that man was Tom Dumoulin. This looks, it's almost eerily similar to the ride that Dumoulin was doing that year. So... It's not wrapped up. We probably shouldn't talk about it too much because by the time most people listen to this, the stage will be happening or over. So we don't want to dedicate like 30 minutes to like Remco's going to crack and then he, he wins the stage tomorrow. That would be uh, kind of silly and I, I guess in some ways possible, but it is a tough stage. I mean, it starts with a 10K long climb at 7%. It's not, a non, it's not impossible that he has no teammates left by the top of that climb. And then, then we're then we're talking. Then it's kind of an interesting day where you'd have still four more climbs. Movistar strong is Movistar actually good at attacking? Maybe not. They always seem like they are. Someone I don't know if the, I don't know if I would like completely back this up, but a Spanish person I was listening to is saying they actually haven't had a successful attack since 2013. 
So the track record's not great, but I've got to say, Enric Moss looks better than I've ever seen him. Like, um, if you watch that summit finish yesterday, it was shallow. So Evanepoel's getting an amazing draft on his wheel, but he was flying. He's flying up these climbs. I've never seen him this good. So I guess it's still possible that he could come back. That would be the ultimate surprise if Enrique Moss wins this race and the Movistar ascends to Grand Tour <laughs> victory. It, it just, gosh, it just seems so improbable, but boy, it would be quite the plot twist, wouldn't it, Spencer? Yeah, I have a soft spot for them. I don't, they're not a well-run organization, but they, I think my cousin described uh, his name as, um, Unzue is his last name. I forget his first name. He runs the team and he's described as the most European man of all time. I mean, he's just like, he is exudes class, very old school cycling guy, probably needs to bring on some like technical expertise to the team, but they're still plugging away. I like how old school they are. It would be, yeah, it would be quite amazing if they win this and save them from relegation, um, which maybe isn't happening. Maybe we'll talk about that a little bit later in the podcast that Ooh, some relegation. That, that relegation has been called off. So. Um, yeah, I would love to see Movistar win, even though it, it's almost kind of rewarding bad behavior. I guess in theory you should, or yeah, just think about logically, you're like, well, Quick Step signed this really talented young rider. They run a tight ship. They win all the time. They do all the right things. We should be rooting for them, I guess. But I don't know. For some reason, I can't quite get behind. It's like, so now they're the best one-day team and they're winning Grand Tours? That seems boring. I can't support that. When I think about the relegation battle, I think about the Emperor and Darth Vader warming up the Death Star, getting ready to fire the beam that destroys planets. But it's it's just warming up right now. It's not ready to fire. It's not ready to fire. There's like uh it's it's so boring. Like we it's we won't even pay attention to it. But in October there's so many races and there's so many points up for grabs that like that's where relegation will be won or lost and none of us will pay attention to it and then we'll say, oh my, how did EF fold? I don't even remember that happening. Um, like for example, I don't know if you watched the quick Quebec race today, there was, I think 500 UCI points on offer. Benoit Cosmofra, Cosnafre, Cosnafre one great ride, by the way, amazing attack gets 500 UCI points. I think the winner of the Vuelta stage, Matt Spiderson got a hundred. So <laughs> the waiting is odd. I mean, it's these small races are really where relegation is won or lost. Um, side note, Quebec city looks awesome. Sign me up. I, I wish I was at these these series of races this weekend. Um, huge mistake not to go. Have you ever been up there, Andrew, for the Quebec races? I haven't. I'm just a stone's throw from that You're area. Close. And I should plan ahead and go next time. I, fe- I mean, yeah, maybe Montreal and Quebec City are the best kept secrets in North America. I mean, every time you watch like the F1 race or these cycling races, it's like, why, why are we not up there all the time? This looks awesome. But maybe the winters are cold. I would assume they are. We might see some real twists in this relegation points race, though. I wouldn't be surprised if the UCI pulls something out of the bag. Suddenly we see a CBR crit and Dominguez Hills and SoCal get awarded just a smattering of UCI points. We see EF and Movistar drop in. They're going elbow to elbow with the Legion, the Miami Blazers trying to pick up these points. And yeah, Legion just, just smokes them. Um, yeah, we'll talk about it's a lot of good stuff that you reminded me of that's happened over the past week. But there was a report that came out this week, or I guess it was just yesterday or, or maybe late last night that they're calling off the relegation battle because it, 
potentially wouldn't hold up in court. Like, for example, if EF, EF is, I'm just looking at, they're 200 points out of relegation. So it's like really, really tight. Like, let's say EF gets relegated. They have to shut the team down because they wouldn't get to go to any team, any races next year. Um, so that they wouldn't be able to keep any rider under contract. Like everyone would leave. It'd be a disaster. And, you know, it's like we talked about last week where Juan Ayuso tests positive for COVID. And because the, you were correct that UAE had as a machine, a PCR machine in the bus so they can show their work. Bike, I think Simon Yates got kicked out. Bike Exchange doesn't have the machine, so they couldn't show their work. That maybe wouldn't hold up in court. And <laughs> I don't know if you were following this. The Tour of Britain was in process. And I could, I mean, tragically, Queen Elizabeth died, like, uh, very sad. Like, I, I think this is a pro Queen Elizabeth podcast. But then they just called off to a Britain, like middle, middle, it was in stage five and they just ended it. And it was a random Movistar guy. I have his race um, profile pulled up here. He's 28 years old. He has four wins in his career. And he just happened to be leading the Tour of Britain and then wins the whole thing and gives Movistar a ton of points. Like that's kind of inherently unfair. Um, they probably would, you'd imagine EF would sue or would challenge that in court. And I think the UCI is worried it wouldn't hold up. So they're just going to let everyone be in the world tour next year. Um, just a 20 team world tour, let the wild cards come, let the pro team, let the automatic pro team comes. The two best second division teams also get invited. Um, there's going to be a ton of riders at every race. My question to you is, is this a bad thing? Like, I don't know. Now I'm thinking about like, why, why do we have an 18 team world tour? Like just bigger parties better, right? Or no. Well, at the end of the day, the ASO can just put random wildcard teams into major races anyway. Yeah. If you're the race, it's actually, I, it's probably a controversial thing, but I don't really love that. Like drone hopper, I guess they're, it's fun that an almost pseudo amateur team can do the zero because RCS invites them. But I want you to watch what you say next. I will smite you <laughs> if you speak poorly you, of drone hopper. You'd, ha you'd have to imagine the, the quality of racing would be better if a team that like had actually like the third best second division team was invited on merit as opposed to just drone hopper being buddies with the organizer, organizer and getting invited. Like that seems a little unfair to me. For people who aren't super deep into the sport that maybe the way we are, I feel like a good analogy here would be if it were an F1 race, maybe you invite a high-level karting team <laughs> to participate in your yeah, F1 so race. It's, it's a real fast kart, though. You know, it's like a faster kart than I could ever, I could ever build, um, but maybe not at the level of the, of the spaceships on wheels that the rest of the teams are driving. I think that that's a pretty apt analogy, though. It's something like that. Yeah, and it, I guess it's fun. I've always accepted it. Like, that's kind of cool. But if you think about it, it's actually bad for the sport because then Drone Hopper gets to sponsor whatever they're sponsoring the team for, for it cannot be very much money, instead of sponsoring a world tour team. Like, it should be expensive to sponsor a team that's at one of the biggest, like the Tour de France has these wildcard teams. Who, their sponsors can't be paying that much. And you're getting, getting, letting them come into this highly valuable event at a super low price, which depresses the amount of money world tour teams can charge for their sponsorship. So the whole thing is odd. I don't know. Like I maybe just get rid of the wildcard invites and let all the good teams come to the race. That would be my crazy idea. Relegation as well. I think <clears throat> just listening to us talk about it and thinking about what it's forced to happen for people who are really into the sport. 
which is total confusion. Typically in media cycles, if you can sustain a sense of crisis over a long period of time, you're going to get more people to come back and check the news more frequently about a topic. In this case, it's relegation, but because it's so esoteric, nonsensical, and difficult to follow, it's not actually delivering the value that it could be delivering if it actually made any sense. And so in principle, I, I think the idea of relegation and even while it's controversial, controversy can be great for the teams. It can be great for the organizers of the sport. It can deliver more eyeballs and higher engagement. But right now it's just confusing. And to have this nonsensical conclusion where there are legal implications and for any fans of Ray Dalio, no one thought through the second and third order consequences of this decision. And now it's just imploding at the end after causing all of this stress to all of these writers and all of these teams. It's just nonsense. Yeah. I actually, I got really into Ray Dalio's LinkedIn post over the course of like a year and I kept, I would not stop using second and third order effects. Um, I apologize to anyone who interacted with me during that time, but yeah, I mean, it's I, Lantern Rouge on the Lantern Rouge podcast had a great point about this today where, you know, it's just like, if you think about the Premier League, like that's the most famous relegation example, but all the Premier League teams play each other and that's how they would accure point, accue points. That's fair. You wouldn't, like, you can't argue that's unfair. And then the second division teams all play each other and they get points that way. And like, that's fair. The best second division teams move up, the worst first division teams move down. But this, it's the second division teams are not getting points at races against the other second division teams. They're just like stealing points at tiny races with that. Like, for example, EF isn't getting invited to probably because Lotto sponsors a lot of these small races with those races not feel like they have to help out lot their sponsor who says, Hey, we're also sponsoring this pro cycling team. Maybe don't invite their rivals who need the points at this race. Like it's a gated system. EF can't go to those races to get points. They're locked out of that. They have to compete just at a much higher level for the same points that are valued the same. I mean, the whole thing is a disaster. Um, I actually really would be shocked if it held up in court. I think this, this rumor it's actually a pretty, it, it, the journalist is, is pretty credible. I bet it's real that they're just going to let all 20 teams competing for world tour status into the world tour. And the joke is on all of us who paid attention to this in any capacity during the last 12 months. What does a world, world tour team license cost? I don't think it's very much money. It's, I, I think it, the dues or something, I'm just going to throw out a number. It's like 80,000 euros a year maybe and then you have to you have to pay into a testing pool that um, funds drug testing at the major events um, so there are some costs associated with it you have to hire a minimum number of riders but you know a second division team like Alpecin doesn't pay into that pool they don't have to have as many riders i think the big the big cost is if you're world tour you have to go to all the world tour events um, if you're Alpecin you can just cherry pick the events you want to go to. And that's also a big advantage. So, you know, if you're EF, you're saying like, this isn't fair. Like we're stretched thin. We're going to all these races. We have the same budget as Alpecin. I don't know if that's true. It's probably a higher budget. Um, 
we're not competing on level playing ground. Um, and if you're a French team like B&B Hotels, you don't even have to worry about world tour status because you're always going to get invited to the tour because you're buddies with ASO. So the whole thing's a mess. Spencer, I just wanted to mention, I had someone DM me following our last episode, gentleman named Kevin Lindy. And he said, hey, I don't understand who's winning the race from listening to your show. If that's what you're looking for, this perhaps might not be the show for you. There are a lot of places where you can get that information. But for anybody who's tuning into this, who doesn't know what's going on in the race, can you give a brief synopsis of Yeah, I feel like standings? we were a little bit better than that at, at the tour, maybe. Um, the Volta, we've lost our minds. So the Volta Espana, we're t- tomorrow is stage 20 um, out of 21. So almost done. Remco Evenepoel is two minutes in front of Enric Maas, two minutes and seven seconds. Juan Ayuso in third place, 19 years old, by the way. That's crazy. Five minutes and 14 seconds back. And then you've got favorites like Miguel Angel Lopez in fourth. And another 21-year-old, Carlos Rodriguez in fifth. Um, this is like the, the vault of youth. Joao made it in sixth. I think he's only 23. Timon Aronsman also 22 in seventh. Ben O'Connor pretty young in eighth. Rigoberto Uran, the lone 30-plus year old rider in the top 10 and ninth Jai Henley in 10th so that's where it stands Mads Pedersen won today Rimko Evanapol's maybe we're not mentioning it I, I think if this if he's picking up on the fact that we're not talking about the race it's because Rimko Evanapol has been so freaking good like I almost feel like there's no there's no nuance here to discuss it's like well he was awesome in the time trial he was also awesome on the climbs he got dropped for a little bit when Primoz Roglic was doing well, and then Primoz Roglic crashed while doing very well, and now there's no one left to challenge Rimko Evenepoel. So I do feel like the course design has not been good at all. Um, there's, there's, no, there's no nuance to it. There's no layering. It's, just, it's either a sprint stage like today, which was a very hard sprint stage, like not throwing any shade at you know, that. Like It's very difficult to get over the climbs they got over to sprint. But it's either that or a GC day where it's flat, a breakaway builds up a big advantage. They stay away on the climb. Quick step's not strong enough to pull back a break. And so the GC riders are duking it out like seven minutes down. It's now seven minutes later on the climb. It's not the most dynamic racing. So, you know, that if you're feeling like we're not talking about the race a lot, I think that's, it's, it's kind of been hard to get excited about in my opinion. I still think Remco is going to lose. But you're right. The only thing that is faded in Remco's performance is his tan, paradoxically. He does seem less tan in the final week of this race than he did at the start, which I don't understand. He was shockingly tan at the start. Um, shockingly tan. So Very much crisp, so. Crisp, crisp tan lines. It's just he's faded a little bit. So here's a few pieces of – we'll just go over the evidence, then we'll discuss. So he was at Sierra Nevada. In southern Spain, we're almost you know almost in Africa. It's that far south at high altitude, seven eight thousand feet training. So, I think at that latitude and that altitude, you're just getting a ton of sun. Like you're gonna it just depending on your natural coloring, you're gonna get a ton of sun. Now, does Remco wear sunscreen training? I don't know. Hard to tell. Um, and then. He went to Holland. The race started in Holland. He goes there. You're automatically, you're losing your, your tan. You know, no matter how sunny it is in Northern Europe, you're just not going to be able to sustain that type of tan. The race transfers to Northern Spain. 
same thing, you know, pretty cloudy place, not a ton of solar radiation up there. I think that's where the tan, you know, started to fade in Holland. It's really fading in northern Spain. And here's my big theory. I think the team makes some more sunscreen during the race because that's very, very hard for your recovery. If you're getting sunburnt during a race, uh, this happened to someone at the tour. They didn't put sunscreen on. It might have been Tom Pickock, actually. And his performance actually really suffered because he was getting sunburnt. So I think the team's making a more sunscreen. He might not have been wearing sunscreen at training camp at high altitude. So that's my big theory on the tan. Pitcock, of course, I think since we last talked, lost the cross-country Olympic mountain bike world championships, which he was favored to win. Nino Scherter took, I believe, his ninth world championship title. Were you surprised, Spencer, that Tom did not deliver? Yeah, I was really surprised. He really got throttled in that race, too. Uh, didn't have the Pitcock pop. And then he goes to Tour Britain. It, it might have well just been called the Tour of Tom Pitcock. Like the whole thing was designed for him. And he didn't win a stage and he didn't win the overall. Maybe a little unfair since it ended abruptly. But yeah, Pitcock's fading like really, really hard. Um, and he's not going to Worlds. I think he cited fatigue, uh, which would make sense that he's just run out of gas. But this also speaks to. I'm almost certain this tour was his first grand tour that he's completed in his career. Um, and, and it's not uncommon to see that. I mean, think about Matthew Vanderpool. Has he been the same rider since he did that Giro d'Italia um, and finished it? Like, it can really change someone going to a grand tour, racing for three weeks, um, especially racing as hard as Tom Pickock did at that tour. Um, I, not that he's like never going to be good again, but it does rob you of some. Uh, some like acceleration and power and explosiveness that you never really get back. You're kind of more of a powerful over duration typewriter. Um, and he's probably just really tired. I, I actually, he should probably stop racing and just rest until the beginning of next road season, but he probably won't do that. Right. Is he not doing cross season this year? Do you know anything about that? I think he might go on more of a Stenex Shibar type of program where he just shows up for worlds. I don't, I don't know. I don't. I, I know he loves cyclocross. Is he going to race a full program? I feel like he won't. I think he's going to go more in the direction of full road and a full road off season. But maybe he'll do, you know, like take that wild approach where he just drops in for maybe a two to three week period of racing and races world championships again. Yeah. It, I mean, we don't have to get into this too much. But then what? So Steve Bar was very good. He went in on the Stebar program, just dropped in for Worlds. And then maybe, I mean, maybe that's what we're seeing with Pitcock, you know, dropping into mountain bike Worlds and you can just no longer race at that level. Um, Stebar just kind of got more and more relevant as a cross racer the longer he was away. Do you think, are people getting better in your absence? Like is the, is the level raising in the sport or you just lose that? It's just a skill that you have to always be working on. And the longer you're away, you're not quite as sharp anymore. I think it's I think it's the latter and I think with mountain bike world championships I think Pidcock was both overly fatigued and perhaps overly confident although generally his overconfidence works in his favor I think he's an incredibly cocky rider which is good in general but I just I think he fell short this time and was overly confident with not enough preparation yeah, I if you have to imagine he's running on fumes. I mean, if you saw any stages of the Tour of Britain, he was getting beaten by riders that really were not at the same level as him. Um, 
now, now I'm like really paranoid. We're not <laughs> telling people the results. I, I don't know the results of Tour Britain off the top of my head. But he's now, I don't think that we can let one comment from <laughs> Kevin Lindy in Chicago, <laughs> Illinois so of, sorry, over Kevin. rotate. No, this is this show's about the race. It's also it's bigger than the race. It's about I everything like that's happening in cycling. It's about if culture. You, if you feel like we're not mentioning it, we're we're helping you. We're saving you from a boring race. Um, yeah, these aren't the droids you're looking for. I actually had the lack of course variants on my punch list of things I wanted to talk about. It's same, so it's the same stage every day. I actually, yeah, let's let's go into that a bit more. What does that do to the dynamics of the race? Do you think, Spencer? And again, even for people who follow the sport very closely, you look at the parkour, and it, it's probably like, wow, that looks hard enough. Why are we not seeing the level of separation? or the opportunities for the GC to be blown up? What's different between the Vuelta and the tour that we just had? Uh, it's going to sound a little simple, but there's not enough climbs and the climbs are not hard enough. So the tour that we had are very hard. Like, you know, think of the day that Pogacar lost time on uh, the Glibier. And then I, I think it was the Grenon was maybe the final climb. Those are hard climbs, serious climbs. And there's many of them. I mean, they were attacking Pogacar 60K from the finish with two really tough climbs remaining after having already gone over a climb. This Vuelta is just not offering that. Um, you Normally, the Vuelta doesn't have, they don't stack stages with like four or five or six big coals, you know, as the French people would say. But they'll have two climbs and the final one will be really hard. You know, let's say 10K long at 15% average. Now, that's been stripped out this year. It, it's a lot more mild final climbs. If there is another climb before the final climb, it, it's not significant. So that you, it makes it a, a lot less fruitful to attack anyone. Um, you know, it's like, was Movistar going to put their team on the front for 60K on the flat to soften up Evanapol? You know, it's not really going to do anything. You just have to wait for the final climb. But what's happening is they're all the same. They're all really similar and they're not steep enough. So let's say even, let's just say Enric Moss is stronger than Remco Evanapol right now. It's just a theory I have. Who knows if it's true? He can't get separation because it, Remco can just draft off of him because it's a five or 6% grade as opposed to like a 10 or 11% grade like we were seeing. You know, think of the Brandon McNulty day when he took Pagachar and Vinegard to the finish on the, that super steep uh, airport runway. You just, we're not getting anything like that. You know, there's no place to hide on those type of climbs. There's a lot of places to hide on these climbs. And you can't attack before the final climb. So it just means everyone sits in. The breakaway can stay away because there's no big chase in the group behind. I mean, I will say I think yesterday was some of the more interesting racing we've seen because Joao Almeida attacked um, from pretty far out and was putting a lot of stress on the GC group behind. But generally, there's just no moves before they get there. And then everyone's pretty fresh when they hit the final climb. And they race up it really fast. You know, the power numbers, I'm sure, are really impressive, but just not a ton of nuance there. And if you're a good rider at, like, Remco Evanpol, amazing time trialist, like a 40-minute, 30-minute at climbing effort, that's great for him. You know, he can just do that all day. You know, can he do five, six of those in a day? I don't know. I mean, we've not seen him be able to do it in the past. So I'd like to see him you know, maybe get on some different terrain, like higher climbs, you know, multiple hard climbs in a day. Like, I feel like they should have mixed in a, a few of those. I don't quite understand what, why actually why they designed this the way they did. 
Another question I'm sure on everyone's mind is, does Remco have a shot of winning the tour in 2023? Mm, that's a good question. I guess he's, well, I mean, assuming he doesn't just fall apart tomorrow and lose. He's minutes. going to. He's going to lose this race. Let's say he loses this race. Let's operate from that assumption. But let's say he loses it by 45 seconds to Enric Moss, you know, 22-year-old in his first complete Grand Tour. That's actually, if you remember, who does not remember the 2019 Volta España, where Tade Pogacar, I think he was 20 years old, finished third, um, you know, had bad days, good days, but impressive for a 20-year-old to get third. That's actually why it's crazy. We're going to get a 19-year-old in third year. Um, and then a year later, he wins the Tour de France. So, uh, yeah, I'd say, I'd say you have to consider him as a B-level favorite, ass- assuming that Pogacar and Vingegaard are your your tier one. Um, and, and that's the good thing. That's, that is the exciting thing about this fault that like maybe the racing has been a little stale and repetitive. The course has been a bit repetitive. I feel like I've learned way more about Andalusia than I ever wanted to know. Like we've spent like a third of the earth, two thirds of the race in Andalusia, but he, you know, he, uh, if, if he wins this and even if he's second by a small margin, it's like, have we, have we like had a potential challenger to those two who I think are head and shoulders above everybody else without any real challengers, that's kind of boring. So the fact that Evanipol could be like a, a third or fourth fiddle at the tour, that's pretty exciting. I, I think, no, he probably doesn't win. Like Jonas Vinegar so good, but Tade Pogacar as well. Like, how does he beat those guys? But assuming those guys have a problem or they're not quite as fit next year, I, I would not rule him out. What's going on with Mods Pedersen? Mods Pedersen, I think you might have hit the nail on the head last time where you said, I mean, so Mods Pedersen, for those who don't know, is he's not very old. It feels like he's been around forever. I think he's 26, Danish. Bigger rider, pretty good sprinter, but also can climb. Um, he's, outside of the GC riders, the most impressive rider at this fault. The, the guy is doing whatever he wants in difficult stages. Can't be beaten in a reduced sprint. Maybe not approaching Van Aert or Vanderpool, Vanderpool levels, but you know, working him away, his way into that second tier of, uh, of like classic racers, one-day racers with, with these performances. And he's not going to world championships, which I think suits him. You know, just looking at the route, granted, we're not getting great information. It's just kind of like a grainy profile and then list the amount of elevation gain. But, you know, for example, like the stage today at the Volta, not very long, 138K. Um, I'm just going to look up really quick what the elevation gain was. But, you know, while I do that, he's not going to the race. It's crazy. Like, just like, ah, I don't want to go. Australia's far away. He says he wants to be with his kids. I think you said last week when we recorded that he's probably just looked and said, ah, 4,000 meters, that's too many. I don't want to fly around the world to get my butt right. kicked and get dropped. Right. That, that might be what it is. I mean, I've, but maybe. I mean, but Spencer, like looking at today's stage, which ended with two ascents of a 9.3 kilometer climb with a gradient of 5.6%, he can hang with he was not even under pressure. I mean, it right? was like, yeah, he was like sitting fifth wheel that whole time. Right. And I was just looking up his stats because I wanted to see his height and weight. He's 1.79 meters, 70 kilos for those of you uh, who measure these things the way we do in America. He's five foot, 10 and a half inches, 
154 pounds. For some reason, I thought he was a bit larger than this. He visually, I don't know why, he looks like he's a bigger writer. I do think looking at um, the photo of his finish today and looking at him a few years back when he won Worlds, he does look, looks a bit leaner and meaner to me. And that was a hard world, if you remember. I mean, just yeah. for example, so today's stage, um, 88 miles, 7,400 feet of elevation gain. So that's like 2,200 meters, 130 kilometers. So it's almost, it is almost worlds if you have the worlds. Worlds is about double the distance, double the elevation, which I would argue makes it slightly easier. You know, anytime you lengthen, you know, if we did a 10 mile race with, a thousand feet of elevation that's really hard you know but if you lengthen it out it gets a little bit easier to handle it actually helps him probably because he's just such a strong rider he can absorb impact like you know not not like physical impact but just like loads massive watts over a long time so yeah i actually don't think it's too hard for him you know maybe there's something going on weird with this danish team where there's a lot of good danish riders maybe he just didn't get selected and like they're letting him say that he just didn't want to go. What, what's your thought on it? This Worlds is going to be, I almost feel like it's a, a Worlds already with an asterisk because it's going to be lacking the top talents in the sport. They're just not going to be there competing. Of course, have to wait and see what happens with Philippe in this recovery period from his shoulder separation. I have this feeling that we're going to see an unlikely winner. I don't know if you saw the news today that Keegan Swenson, winner of SBT Gravel and the Leadville 100, is going to be racing on the U.S. Road Worlds team. Yeah, I saw this. He's never raced a professional road race in his life. I, I don't know why, but I think he's going to do really well in the race. No, he won't do yeah. this. No, yeah. I, I had the same conversation with I think when Eric Marcotte went to, um, it wasn't Oman, it was Cutter. And Marcotte was good at the time. You're really good, like unbelievably strong. One was U.S. national champion. And it's just a different beast. You get, you get those distances. You get the pace of the world tour. Not saying Keegan Swenson, if he dedicated his life to racing at this level, would be very good, I'm sure. I'm sure he has the physical capability. But to jump in like that is unbelievably hard unbelievable it's 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 almost a different sport to what he's been doing he's going to be like it's like he's going to be breathing through a, a tiny tiny straw for the first hour because he's like why the heck are people going so fast what is going on why are there so many people around me i think it's just it's too hard to throw him in i why do you think this is happening i'm looking at the team right now um Poston Krudik actually it is not going He's listed on the team. He couldn't get into the country, which is a little strange. Why? Um, he couldn't yeah, get into the country? Visa, visa was denied by, the, by Australia. Do you think there's... Yeah, we, should, we probably shouldn't speculate on... Well, at first, I thought maybe he's not vaccinated, right? That's... The only thing well, if you're of. speculating that, that's immediately but what I, I thought as well. Is that possible? I, look, I looked it up, and it looked like you don't have to be vaccinated to enter Australia. Huh. Maybe, maybe I was reading the wrong information, but that was my only guess. Like, Maybe he wanted to bring a pet and they wouldn't let him. I hear that it's <laughs> I, no, I've, I've heard it's really hard to bring a dog yeah. into Australia for whatever reason. You can only bring in dingoes. <laughs> bring them back home. Um, yeah. Repatriate dingoes. I, I think it's fun to imagine Keegan going and like the spirit of gravel propels him to like 10th place. But 
I think it's just too much. But if there's no one, if they truly can't find people to do this, like Nielsen, Nielsen Palace is also on the list. He's opted out of it because he has to chase points for his team. I think same thing with Mateo Jorgensen. I think Movistar has him doing races and they don't want him there not earning points for the team. It's possible they just didn't have any any road riders and they're just like, oh, let's send Keegan, which if that's the case, that's fun. That's a good idea. I'm glad they did it. It's wild to me because the purpose of the world championship is to determine ostensibly the best rider in a specific discipline of cycling. And in addition to that, it's a way for the world governing body of the sport to grow the sport in important or emerging markets. And Australia has a strong cycling culture. I know there's also a lot of antipathy uh, there towards cyclists. Like, there's a lot of conflict between motorists and cyclists, even though they have a very strong sport culture generally. And cycling. Yeah, I have heard this as well, that it's not a great relationship. Yeah, it is not a great relationship. And uh, yeah, so what then is the point of the world championships if you're going to throw world championships and nobody's going to come? Yeah, and why do you why do you think no one's going? Because I remember remember Geelong. What was that? Two thousand. That must have been like two thousand. Yeah, not too long ago, something like that. Two thousand eleven. Yeah, seemed to, maybe I was just an idiot at the time, or I wasn't consuming enough news. Um, did that? It didn't seem to have a problem getting people to go. Then, I, what do you think's different now? It's. I think you're right. I think it's the relegation issue. I think there are probably issues related to COVID exposure, COVID vaccines. Uh, we also talked about this on the previous episode. The writers themselves are being, in many instances, are being asked to pay for the cost of travel there and back. They're not getting support from their professional teams for whatever reason, which seems odd to me. Like, particularly if you have a writer locked into a contract and they have a chance of winning, I think it's highly beneficial to have the world champion on your team. Unless you're quick step well, and then you and then you chide your writer for being a world champion. <laughs> yeah, there's a team that I'm doing work for, Lotto, which asked its asked Belgium not to select any of its riders because they want them gaining points. Um, and they knew that like they knew Victor Campenarts is just gonna be a domestique on the Belgian squad. So I think if you really thought like a bike exchange with Michael Matthews, like he could win. They're going to let him go. Um, but if you just have to go do work for your national team, like wh- why? Yeah. What, what good is that to the trade team? I mean, this is a mess of the UCI's on making. Like they came up with the relegation promotion system that I don't think was very well planned out. And then they're cannibalizing their own race. Like the, the world's is the biggest UCI. It's the, really the only UCI promoted race of the year. Sometimes there's the Olympics. So that's their two shots they get to be race promoters. And they're not doing a very good job of it so far. I mean, the, the riders are skipping the event, really good riders, because of a rule they implemented that's now cannibalizing their own race. It's, and that, it's and that might actually, and as you noted earlier in this episode, and this whole relegation thing may be a wash because of legal implications they didn't think through in the first place. So if that's the case, and tomorrow or this week, it turns out that the relegation battle is over because there are legal implications of the manner in which they're executing this. And all of these riders could have gone to worlds and did not need to chase points. Yeah, that's what I was just thinking about before we started recording. Like, then what, then like, what oh, happens? Crap. Well, I wonder if 
I wonder if, well, A, they came out and they refuted the report, which um, blows my theory up. But my theory was, oh, they're backing down so that like Nielsen Palace can go to Worlds, not just specifically Nielsen, but just the best riders in the world can feel free to go race the world championships. Like they've realized this is stupid. And then they came out with a report saying, refuting it. And then I thought, oh no, they're actually not. I've gave them too much credit. They're not backtracking. But that would that was my theory when I when I heard the initial report that they were calling off relegation, that it was just trying to get riders to actually go race um, who are on these endangered teams. But I don't know. Like I actually I don't now that I think about it, I don't even really know what it's what is it like getting a visa to go to Australia? Like can Keegan Swenson get one? Uh, what, what was the deal with Lawson Crotic? Like, it, does it take a long time to get a visa to go to Australia? I'm not quite sure. Yeah, the World Tour teams seem pretty dialed in with handling these types of logistics because they're doing them constantly. I think that we know national federations are not always uh, well-oiled or highly funded machines. I mean, even less so than than uh, professional cycling teams, which can suffer from some of the same challenges. So yeah, I don't know. It's a uh, it's a bit of a mystery. And Spencer, even though the UCI has refuted that report, that doesn't mean that it it might it still may actually be true. We may see yet another reversal, the reversal to the reversal to the reversal, and it could prove to be true. Yeah, I have a line out. I, I sent a direct message to <laughs> the owner of the Israel Premier like. Premier Tech team asking what is going on to see if he has any insight. So if he emails me back before this podcast ends, I'll let you know. Okay. Um, and so the thing here's my next question. If Wout Van Aert wins this, are we just like, no, that was a great world. I don't even remember what the problem was. Like, is it just make everything okay for us personally? Yeah, I think it does. The reality is part of winning a bike race is you show up at the bike race. It's just like doing well at anything in life. Step one is show up. A corollary is be on time. Uh, and then you have the opportunity to succeed. If you don't do those two things, then you're not in the race. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm just looking at the Quebec city grand prix or whatever they call it now. Um, and it's still, it's a good, I assume these are all, th- this is essentially a warm up for worlds. And you have Michael Matthews, Biniam Gourmet, Wout Van Art, Alberto Bettiol. I mean, these are really good riders. Greg Van Avermaet. I, I'm excited to watch those guys race on an Australian course. So yeah, I think it does get dicey when you hold it so far away. I'm now remembering the, the cutter year. Um, USA Cycling wasn't funding, they weren't paying for anyone's flight. So if you were willing to pay your own way to the Middle East, they would have they would let you race. You know, so it's like you could just it was like an open application. I remember applying. I I did not get in. I made I think they maybe just didn't send anyone in that slot. They're like, ah, it's Spencer or nobody. I'll just go with nobody. So I guess it does get weird. I mean, it is let's say Ireland's not sending a team. Ireland's got some pretty good riders, but should Ireland, should the Irish Federation really be spending their money in that manner? You know, it gets, it gets odd at a certain point where like, is it better just doing grassroots promotion for the sport in Ireland or same thing with USA Cycling? Like why is USA Cycling in charge of flying these riders around the world? Um, shouldn't they just be focusing on promoting the sport within the US 
or, or am I like misinterpreting? I think there should be two totally different things. Like USA Cycling should not be in charge of local races and sending riders to Australia to race. Uh, it's just an odd marriage of responsibilities, in my opinion. I'm excited to see Benny M. Gourmet race again. Yeah, he's back. I had kind of forgotten about the eye injury until today when I saw him racing. He looked fantastic. And then also I was going to send you, I tried to make a gif of Peter Sagan mid-race, just riding off course to a porta potty and then going into a porta potty. He's <laughs> pulling a Dumoulin, as we call so, it. Yeah, he is dialed in, ready to go. Um, that would also be it. If Peter Sagan wins this Worlds, I think we'll, we'll quickly forget our gripes about this, these World Championships. I mean, do well, you think? Yeah, go ahead, Spencer. Like, so I assume you'd want to go about right now because Worlds is in two weeks, essentially. Like, are they flying business class? Like, what, do you like? What, there's no way Wout Van Aert's like in economy, right? Like, how okay. do you think the logistics of this work? I've been using Twitter to check in on this. Phil Guyman had a post today. This is how I, I didn't see Wout's tweet, but Wout had tweeted that he's paying. 8,000 euros for his business class seat one way. And, you know, and then he was like, he basically was saying, this is costing me a fortune to go attend this and I'm personally paying for it. And he said, that's not even including my bikes. Wout is going to be flying business class. I bet there are going to be a lot of world tour riders who are in middle seats with uh, bag lunches is my guess. It's yeah, I mean you're right. I mean obviously Wout can afford that. That's awesome for him. Congratulations to Wout. You're going to get a ton of miles for that. I'm surprised that he's paying for his own bikes. I mean that you'd think the federation would pay for that or but, Red Bull somebody. Yeah, I mean I think I, like Lance Armstrong and George Hancapier are always like why is he even flying commercial? Like why not just a private jet? But I, I think those guys are maybe under overestimating like i don't think they were flying private to like the sydney olympics um i think it's just hard no no pro cyclist at, at least in this era can afford a private jet i think it's maybe harder to wrangle a private jet than they're imagining but i don't know maybe it is like the world's richest man lives in belgium like can they not just i don't know that, that is a little odd that he's paying his own way and yeah there's going to be good riders like think of binium i i doubt he's in business class i bet he's in economy flying to Australia. And like, that's a huge competitive disadvantage. It's a long flight to not have good food, to be extremely dehydrated upon arrival. Um, it's definitely, it's definitely going to affect him in the race compared to Wout's relatively easy trip. You're not putting your Norma on back in, uh, back no, in coach, right? I don't think that's happening. And you can, I have a friend to Norma on trips to and from Europe in business class. So I know it's possible. I've seen it done. I just want to make sure that we get to Roglic Gate before we conclude this uh, this broadcast. I'm actually looking at a photo of Roglic following stage 16. His goatee does not look as full as it did in the team statement that was uh, issued related to the crash. And I have to say, he looks real effed up. He looks like he is in extreme shock and like it was... I mean, the crash looked bad on TV, unfortunately, and I want to talk about this. You couldn't really see it very well. And now we're Zapruder filming this and looking at crowdsourced iPhone footage to determine what happened in the final several hundred meters of a race once again. And uh, it's just a mess. 
Yeah, well, first of all, we should, we should talk about amazing move. Roglic crashes at the end of stage 16 after a, a ridiculous effort. I'm actually, I thought that was like up there with Froome, if you remember him riding away with, it was like Bodnar and Peter Sagan and Garrett Thomas. I think maybe Garrett Thomas is in that group. At the end of that tour stage, like he was putting out absurd watts, like very exciting move. And then he crashes. He I just he just straight up rode into Fred Wright. That, that's how I interpreted it when I was watching it live. I was like, oh my God, he just rode into Fred Wright because he's so on the limit. He doesn't know what's going on or who's around him. This is sad. I'm sad now. I'm in a hospital waiting room yelling and people are worried about me. That was my experience watching it in real time. Um, and then, yeah, I looked at the footage, like the Zabruta film footage, because there was a thought that like, oh, we hit a piece of paper on the road or there was like a sticky st- sticky tack on the road and he slipped. It did kind of look like that. But this fan footage makes it clear that, you know, he, he pulls off, the sprint opens up and he's thinking, well, I don't want to lose any time. I worked really hard for this. I'm just going to slot in here. You know, I think he just didn't. He just saw Van Poppel go by and thought, oop, I got to jump in. I got to jump right here. And then Fred Wright is also opening up a sprint thinking, I've got a sprint for the win. And then he's coming into the pace line when Fred Wright's coming through and just hits him on accident. That's how I read it. And yeah, they put out this statement. Your Yumbo, the team put the statement out or did Roglic put the statement out? I believe the team did. Yeah, so the team put the statement out. Basically saying like this is unacceptable. These racing conditions are unsafe because there's people like Fred Wright causing crashes at the end of races. That do you can you sum it up better than that? That's pretty much it. They pretty much were blaming Fred Wright for the crash, saying that he had uh, yeah that he'd taken out Primos. They're outraged. You know something should be done about this. We have to speak up. We won't be silent. That type of thing. It's just uncomfortable language. It's like, what is the something to be done? Like eliminate Fred Wright from the sport? From find, like find going- find him. Yeah, find him and kill him. Yeah, and the irony is, Roglic crashed out of the Tour de France because there was a stupid hay bale in the middle of the road. Like right. that's the you'd think that's what they should take issue with is the biggest race in the world having hay bales flying around in the road that he ran into no fault of his own. This was, I feel like, an odd an odd thing to take issue with. I mean, I can totally understand how he hit Fred Wright, why he thinks it's Fred Wright's fault. But then I maybe have a hot take of there's no such thing as fault or right or wrong and bike crashes. Like, there's, there's only those who crash and those who do not crash. And, like, the one that's not on the ground is, is inherently the winner. Like, there's no body that you ever appeal to that it's like, this isn't a normal sport where there's referees. Like, don't crash. Crashing's bad. Crashing usually involves you getting hurt and not being in a race anymore, which is not good. And it's like, did Fred Wright cause the crash or not? It's like kind of irrelevant, guys. Like, we got to move on. Like, I, I don't know. Like, I, it's always like funny when people are like, he chopped my wheel. It's like, I don't know. Like, the, he moved around in a race. Like, don't let him hit your wheel. Protect your front wheel, kids. Like, that's my advice. Don't crash. Win a race. Like anything goes really, unless you get disqualified from a race, which is very hard to do. Don't take your hands off the bar bars and like complaints about clean riding, not clean riding. That's always felt a little petty to me. Um, yeah, I, I, so you tweeted this like, kind of like a jokey tweet about if you're those 
five people who remember crit beef from what was that two years ago last year no there was crit beef this year there was a really there was the fist fight maybe six weeks ago oh yeah with michael hernandez and yeah crit yeah, beef yeah. continues it's crit beef season two <laughs> the fist fight i forgot about that yeah that, and then there was of course last year there was the protracted crit beef and the crash in the final corner at i don't think it was pro nats i believe it was elite nats yes yes this was a massive crash um but yeah anyway so you're watching that race you're thinking they're about to crash and then they do crash that's kind of what happens in in a lot of crits I hate to spoil it for anyone who's not seen a crit before but it usually happens yeah, and then so now we've got Primos and Fred, right side Fred here, and uh, having this dispute. I happen to have the tweet pulled up. It did come from Team Yumbo Visma, and they did issue a statement. So they have a picture of Primos with a really tight, thick goatee, not the same one he had at the end of stage 16. So this is. Are you suggesting from Photoshop? I, maybe he asked for it to be enhanced. I don't know. There's a lot of goatee pride in the world tour peloton these days. The tweet says, after the crash, it took me time to straighten things out. My conclusion is that the way this crash happened is unacceptable. This is not the way I want the sport to continue. And I want to make that clear. And then they have a photo of Primo's tight goatee with the caption, or it's actually superimposed on the photo. One crash too many for Primo's Roglic. Though there is hope for safer racing. I like what they're trying to do here from a narrative control perspective. And if I'm Primos having crashed out of yet another Grand Tour, I'm sure he's incredibly Which frustrated. Sucks. Yeah, it's yeah, like it sucks, man. Enough. Yeah. yeah, it sucks. It's no fun. I, the, I, the wild thing to me is that this is coming out, what, now two days later? So he's just been steaming and nobody around him and again, I, I do want to get into this because I'm not really sure that we have good footage of what actually happened. And Spencer, I know that you said it on Twitter. I don't know if you've said it during this conversation. But your theory is that Primos rode into the handlebars of Fred Wright. Fred or, Wright was I don't the know right into his handle. I think he, he rode into something. Fred Wright was the writer in front. And if you're the writer coming from behind and you wreck, it's your fault. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think what happened is he pulled off. It's funny. I mean, Kaylee Fretz tweeted it. I've seen it all over. It's like a picture of Rainbow's crashing. And then someone circled the massive amount of space on the other side of the road. And it was like places Primos could have been, which is like a little, a little simplistic, a little reductive, but there's a good point there. But I th he like swings over really hard. And I think he, he was coming over just as Wright was, you know, was just riding in a straight line. You know, it's like Fred Wright didn't do anything wrong. He's just riding straight at a high speed Roglic comes over and then you know like you have elbows and stuff that are out and I think Fred just kind of came up and hit him as he was coming by but there's no way like there's no reason Roglic even should have been next to him like you swing kind of behind someone so you don't run into them and Fred Wright's handlebars were in front of but you can tell who was in front of whom because it's almost always the rider whose handlebars are in front that doesn't crash you just are so much more stable. Um, so if your handle, if it's like the simplistic gorilla man logic is like whoever's handlebars in front gets the wheel. And, yeah. and the, the reason it's not like some unwritten code, it's just because you will crash if your handlebars are not in front of someone. So yeah. Yeah. He who breaks the law goes straight to the house of pain. 
Fred Wright took the safety off and he jumped on Twitter two hours ago, more or less saying that I like he was kind of shocked by what he saw. He thinks it's not fair. The team and I have looked at the footage again. I have to say, Fred, hey, Fred Wright, what footage did you look at? Because honestly, seeing the footage of the bicycle race that was streamed, I don't really know what happened. So I'd love to know what footage you're looking at. Maybe you had some super clean shot of this that a random person with an iPhone got, which I want to get into what a massive problem this is for just the sport generally, that we have no idea what's happening in the finale of these races and technology does indeed exist that could give us a clean view of what's happening. I think that's a huge problem. Um, but yeah, he said it was just a, it was just a racing incident. I don't believe I did anything wrong. Primos is an amazing bike rider saying, you know, so he's saying nice things about him. I feel bad for him, blah, blah, blah. People are saying bad things about me, but seems like bike Twitter has, has Fred's back. Adam Meyerson coming in hot on this one. Uh, but I think the bigger problem here, like let's set aside the feelings of these riders just as a fan of the sport. And, you know, I have, uh, I've written about this. I've been interviewed about it in other places now. Um, that I was the subject of an interview in Jonathan Kaplan's new bike related substack and i talked about this very topic a huge problem in professional cycling right now if they want to grow the sport forget the netflix show please show us the end of bike races it doesn't seem like an unreasonable thing to ask for show me the the end <laughs> of the bike race so that i can understand what happened please it's against tradition that's against tradition so i'm uh, just one last question on the statement what what do you, th as a communications professional, what was the point of this stage statement? Like, what were they looking to achieve with it? I have to imagine a couple factors were at play here. This had to run through everybody in the organization before this was approved, and it's put out through an official communications channel from Yumbo Visma. I think that this is it. The the primary thing is they want to keep Primos happy. Primos feels aggrieved. He feels that he's been wronged. And I think management was willing to take the bullet on this one in order just to appease him and keep him happy. Who knows how far he took this or his agent took it, but clearly they made some type of demand. I can't imagine anyone on the communications staff at Yumbo Visma thought this was a good idea. And that, that happens sometimes. Sometimes you do something because there's a uh, there's a need to keep someone or or some third party whatever somebody needs to uh, be taken care of and I think that that's maybe what they're doing in this instance. Looking at um, where Yumbo is in the race at this point in time, and to have Primos crash out of it again, a more cynical view of this, and I don't think this is what's actually happening, but going back to Ray Dalio, this is a second order of consequence of what they've done. They've had someone who had a chance potentially of winning the race crash out very late in the game. He no longer could deliver any marketing or publicity value. This is a way to stay in the news cycle and to make news through controversy. So they have generated a lot of news and exposure for their sponsor. Maybe not the 
publicity that they want, but they are staying in the news for a few more cycles than they would have if Primos had just gone away quietly and been, you know, and lost due to crashing out of the race again. It's yeah, it's certainly a cynical view. I kind of read it as the first way where like Primos is steaming at home and there's like, God, we're going to get killed. But at the end of the day, yeah, you just got to keep him happy. I mean, what do you, okay. You take it on the chin for a week and then no one remembers this. So yeah, exactly. Yeah, I agree. I think it's the former, not the latter. I don't think that anyone thought, Hey, let's get a few more cycles out of this. I think that they're just trying to keep Primos happy. And I agree with you. This is, this See, is like uh, going to be gone and, 48 hours nobody will remember that this happened except for us we'll keep bringing it up for perpetuity and <laughs> I, i'll never forget I, yeah. I did respond to your tweet like with I, I thought it was photo evidence of primo's being in the wrong i mean i i love it he's probably my favorite writer i love yumbo respect the organization love the country of slovenia and then i recorded a podcast i came back upstairs i had it, i thought my twitter was broken i was like oh why do i have so many mentions that's unusual and they're all in slovenian so we might be we might be banned from the country of Slovenia. Even though I love it, I love Primos. I hope we can get through this. Um, yeah. So your thing with yeah, we don't see what's going on. This wealth has been particularly bad with trying to see what is happening in the final kilometer. The only so like the I'll stand up for big cycling if for in one way where like okay, track and field has the camera that follows along because track and field is lame and happens in a stadium on a track. And there's no fans drooling on the runners. They're they're in their properly seated areas. Um, you know, it's like cycling sprints have fans packed on both sides of the road. Uh, it's I don't think you could do a track. They do it on the Champs Elysees, but I think that's a guy on a motorcycle, maybe in the middle of the Champs Elysees where there's no fans. So it's like it does happen once a year. I think it's hard. You wouldn't really be able to position a moving camera because you'd have to just get fans out of one side of the road, which would really take a lot of the atmosphere away. Yeah, I guess. I mean, it also would inadvertently make the potentially make the finishes safer. I mean, it, it might uh, remove some of the, the feet of barriers that keep uh, causing problems at the end of races. Yeah, but then I someone's going to run into that camera. Yeah, eventually. somebody's <laughs> going to run into the camera. I don't know. They're, you're right. This might be a, the level of complexity here might be beyond the capacity of the UCI and it, it's a moving circus in every way. I also think if you want the sports to succeed, people need to be able to see the ends of races in detail and understand the action full stop. Something Whatever. you might be able to do is like, like a string, uh, not a string, but like a thick wire for like the last 500 meters. And instead of on the side, the camera is above them. As long as it doesn't fall on them, it's probably pretty safe. Yeah. And I, that's probably the reason that drones aren't used. And again, we've talked about this on previous episodes, but I think when selecting where the finale is going to happen for stages, a, a persistent problem is that it's often in areas where there's thick foliage or there are trees obscuring the view, the overhead view, which is why we don't see a helicopter shot a lot of the time. There is something um, called tree trimming, Spencer, and you can trim back trees so that a street might be visible. There is expense associated with that. But if I were the ASO and had a magic wand, I probably would make a condition of having the finale of a race be, hey, in the final kilometer, there needs to be a clean line of sight and we need to find a route where it's possible for the riders to have a clean run in so that we can at the very least 
have an overhead shot from a helicopter to your point about the final 500 meters of a race and maybe having a camera on a cable. I'd have to talk to people I know in TV and film to see if this would be possible. But I mean, that technology has existed in many other, any sport that happens in a stadium, a stadium is a static fixed environment, but yeah, like watch Monday night football. There are cameras that are on cables that are moving around over the field of play and capturing everything. They are moving slower than the finale of a bike race, but there are ways to capture footage and show the end of a bike race. And unless they start using them, I think they can forget about a Netflix series drawing people into the sport or people having a high level of interest beyond super fans like us and people who might listen to this. You need to be able to tell who's winning the race, how they won it, and what happened and when they're mixing it up in that that final 500 meters. I I also wonder if the helicopter screwed the pooch on that. There should have been a helicopter shot of that finish and we never got one. There were trees. I mean, just there were tree. It was a tree lined street. That's why there wasn't a helicopter shot. I guess. Yeah, I guess you're right. Where tree trimming does exist. You often see trims trees being trimmed or, I mean, that, that was an awesome finish. So maybe don't move it, but there's also a lot of streets that are not tree lined that you think you could finish a race on. He's probably easier said than done. I mean, yeah, the, the factors that go into getting riders into a city center, navigating road furniture and having the run in that they need. I'm sure it's complicated, but come on. But we're also talking like we're way ahead of where the problem even is. Like Rigoberto Ron finishes a race, wins it. That's awesome. And then they'll just show us him with his team, like his son, Swanior. And it's like there's racing still happening. The GC right. racing is happening down the road and we're not seeing it. Like it just seems like there's a fundamental misunderstanding of I actually don't know who directs these races, but they often show you stuff that's not really pertinent while pertinent stuff is happening. So even just getting that sorted out would be a bit of an improvement. Right. And that has to do with the primary feed that goes out to everyone in every language. And yeah, the people who are calling the race have no control over the footage that they're seeing. And you're right. There could still be critical action going on at the finish line because not everyone is finished who's in the race for the GC. And what you're getting is someone with one of those mysterious Swanier backpacks. I'd like to do a full episode on that. I don't know if we could get a, a Swanee on to talk about what's going on in those backpacks and who manufactures them. Yeah, I've often wanted them and then you, you never see them. Yeah, we need to know. Um, something I know you got a tea time. I've got, <laughs> I, can't, I can't even make up something I have. Actually, I just have to keep working. But I, I've been dying to ask you about this since it happened. But the, there was a professional bike race in the United States for the first time in a long time. Maryland Cycling Classic maybe is what it was called. Did you pay attention to this? Were you impressed? Were you not impressed? What do you think the problems were if there were problems with it? I'd like to address that in a future episode. Okay. I will say short, short uh, takeaways. Set Benmark, great win, hard race. I think it kind of got blown out of the water by like even Belgian Waffle Ride Lawrence, Kansas edition. Um, it, it was, you, you could easily known it was not happening. Completely forgettable. Um, event that failed to connect with the community around it, in my opinion. 
Yeah, I also had people reach out to me who have heard me rant about the need to be able to visually understand what's happening at the finish of a bike race who have reported they couldn't understand what was happening at the end of the bike race. Yeah, I kind of someone was like, "What what did the crowds look like on TV?" because they were there in person. It's like, "Man, I don't even know if I can give you an answer." <laughs> like I, I couldn't I feel like I was having a stroke. I like I, I kind of like it was like I had a dream of the race. <laughs> Finished it like right at sunset. You couldn't see anything. Um yeah, a lot of problems with the finish of that race. Visually. Well, Sp- yeah, Spencer, I hope that we can do and we'll talk about this offline. We should probably do a wrap-up episode or or talk about where we go from here, maybe a pre-worlds um preview. We don't have time to get into it, but the 3 kilometer rule and the the uh, Remco. Oh, I can't believe we didn't talk about this. <laughs> the Remco <laughs> bi- bike change. I God. mean, talk about like things that like come on. Like let's make this our sport a bit more understandable because people inside the sport were scratching their heads and nobody could say what was like. You know, anything that you can do within the boundaries of the rules to gain a competitive advantage. Hats off, or as they say in the UK, fair play, fair play, Remco. And it was just really difficult to understand. Was that fair play? Was that actually within the boundaries of what's legal in the sport? Was it an exploitation of the rules? Was he actually outside of 3K? Um, It just reminded me of things that I've heard about. uh, I'm not going to name the writer. You might know who it is, but there was a certain professional writer in the autumn of his career in the United States who unexpectedly won the world championships in the early 2000s. And what I heard was that he had derailleur problems and was getting pushed up the major hill on the course every lap uh, while someone fixed his derailleur. And that was within the rules at the time. And this person ended up winning the... He won the race in the sprint. He was not a sprinter because he basically had gotten pushed up the most difficult feature on the course every lap because that was just whatever. That was within the boundaries of the rules. He found a way to use it to his advantage, and he won. Like, do we want people winning bike races this way? Sorry, was this at the World Championships? You said no, no, no. It was uh, oh. the U.S. National Championship. Okay, yeah. I, I was gonna say yeah, that sounds a lot like a story I heard about a race in Philadelphia. Um, yeah, I mean that's a little, maybe a little bit more egregious, but it was egregious, but within the boundaries of the rules during a, a different time. Well, let's just say, let's just, I, I don't think this happened. I think this would be act, asking too much from like an acting perspective, but um, let's just say quick step pre-plan this because they're like, hey, you know what? Let's opt out of a really hard five minute effort before a mountain stage. Just pretend to have a flat. The moment you go into 3K to go, I don't, I don't think that's against, I mean, maybe I think the rule's a little vague. I like Neil Rogers tweeted, like, I'm sure they have a mechanism in place for checking this. It's like, I promise you they do not. And you could just deflate the tire when you're putting the bike on top of the car. Not very hard to do that. And I'm not sure that I think the way the rule is written, you could just say, I thought my derailleur was not working or I couldn't shift. I think you could say that like I could not shift. And that constitutes a mechanical problem. And are you lying? Not really. I, yeah, it's, it's, it was a total disaster, I think. Um, I think what happened is Remco flatted before. He had a slow leak smartly. I mean, talk about like great thinking on the spot. Just rode to 3K to go. It pulled over and got a new bike because if he had pulled over before, he would have lost a ton of time. 
Yeah, I believe even at this early point in his career, which has seen great success, Remco is already referring to himself in the third person. He's like that kind of writer, I think. Um, <laughs> he's not very likable. <laughs> I, he's an amazing <laughs> writer. I, I, I'm in awe of his physical talents. <laughs> it just does not seem like the most likable person. He is continuing the hot streak of Belgian super professionals with fantastic hair. I have to say. Oh, my he's, God. Yeah, talk about right? doping. I guess we weren't talking about doping, but Photoshop. I don't know what's going on with this hair. It's crazy. It's there. Everyone has perfect hair. If you're like a world-class cyclist below the age of 24. But I mean, that might be the secret right there. Yeah. I mean, there's a correlation. Um, and w- one thing I was going to say about Remco is we haven't got as much. There's like bad Remco or maybe mean Remco and good Remco or composed Remco. We've, the ratio has been a lot of composed Remco and there is like a direct correlation between that and his performance. Like there was one stage he crashed and he was yelling at the commissary. He thought, I don't know. He thought the right camera photo slowed down. I don't know about that. that strange. He's the only one that crashed, but that's the only temper tantrum we've seen from him. I mean, think of the Giro last year where he got off his bike and was like literally having a temper tantrum and they made him get back on the bike. Um, he's not been like that at all. Like except for that one little blow up, it's been super composed. So if he can keep his emotions in check, it's kind of like an Alaphilippe-esque um, emotion, emotion-led rider. But if he can keep that in check, he's a very, very dangerous rider in any race he's in. You know, I don't know what journalists are physically at this race covering the event for English language outlets, but I do want to note, I mean, Remco does to have, seem to have achieved a full narrative reset from having a mysterious object removed from his jersey um, following a crash a couple of years ago and speculation about what that might have been and why it was removed from his jersey while he was uh, severely injured. I'm just wondering if we're going to have an incredibly brave journalist um, upon the completion of this race, which I do believe he will lose, but in the event that he wins, will we have a brave journalist who hasn't said anything the entire race after the race is over, ask if he's doping? Absolutely not, because he's from a, he's from countries that don't dope. We all know, Andrew, it's mm. only Eastern Europeans, Southern Europeans, or non-Europeans who dope. We never have anyone from Belgium, Holland, Britain, or France has ever doped. So they never get asked about it. If, but if you're from Slovenia, you're probably doping. That's the way it works with the media. Yeah. So I wonder if anybody's going to ask the question. And I, you know, honestly, I have no reason to believe that Remco's doping other than that mysterious object removed from his, the, uh, his jersey what? pocket. Theory I heard about that is I always, I have to, I think about this way more than I should, but I wonder if the guy was like, it's just like some random object. And he's like, no, oh, I don't want him to lose this. Let me grab it. And then it like turned into this big thing. But theory I heard is I didn't realize this. You're not allowed to broadcast your power to your team right. car. Right. That it was some type of transponder. I don't even know if that is a thing that exists, but that is kind of funny that that's not, I guess it would be, an, would it be an advantage? It's funny that that's not allowed. I guess they don't want like remote control riders, directors right. telling guys to slow down. But you know, that, that you know, I don't know. It's a possibility, but I, it was a funny thing that I didn't know was illegal um, until that happened. Yeah, which would be another form of doing something illegal to gain an edge in a race. But 
whatever. He wasn't busted for anything. I'm just maliciously speculating, which isn't cool. I don't know. It was in his jersey pocket. Um, Remco's hard to to sling mud at. It's kind of like Pogacar. I guess he got a lot of mud slung at him, but it's like guys who have been good for so long or from such a right. young age. It's it's tough to tell their baseline. Like like you know, it's I don't know. <laughs> Let's just say someone was an obscure writer who was almost fired from their team, and then they won like four straight Tour de France's. Like someone like that is maybe a little bit more suspicious than it's. Yeah, it, I don't know. It's hard to like get your hands around it. Like I guess could he have been doping since he was like fifteen? I, I maybe, but that would seem unlikely. Yeah, I don't know. And even looking at the top ten in this race, it's just more. It's uh, it's more cycling two point Very young riders who have had the benefit of having the democratization of training information, of nutrition information, recovery information, but there's a real shift taking place in the sport. I mean, I guess contrasted with looking at um, looking at uh, where Rigo Uran sits in GC and his performance the other day, which is, you know, in the current Peloton, he's a very old rider and he did have an outstanding performance, which was cool to see but he is the exception not the norm these days yeah i mean maybe this is something we'll talk about in our wrap up well to wrap the show but the youth here has been mind-blowing to me almost disturbing to me uh it's like every i used to think you had to ride a grand tour at least once like egan bernal did to then perform well in a gc role and I mean, Juan Ayuso is 19 years old i don't know if we've ever seen <laughs> a 19 wild a teenager podium at a grand tour so it's wild. Yeah, it's really blowing my mind. I think the course has contributed to that. It's not a lot of stages that are like youth breaker stages that are just brutal multi-mountain days. But that's just me guessing. I mean, maybe, I don't know, maybe everything we thought about fitness was wrong. And now we're being proven that it's being proven. It's fitness 2.0. Fitness 2.0, where we're, we're going to discuss next week. But thanks for joining, Andrew. We'll let you take off, get get out to the links. And we will be back at some point uh, next week to talk about what actually happened with this Volta. Talk to you then, Spencer. All right, bye. Be well.